Peace be with you. Uh, really quick, too, I want to add just to, there's been an update. Um, we had asked, talked to you guys about how the city was kind of collaborating with churches and, and doing warming centers. And so, um, and then a bunch of you signed up because we had offered our support to that effort. So we were going to bring food to those, uh, some of those events and a church that was hosting those homeless people. And um, there was some schedule changes. I think some things happened with at least one or two churches. And the week that we were scheduled to come in is not needed. So you, you don't need to do anything. <laughs> That's basically what I'm saying. And I, I am sorry on behalf of the team. Like, we're so, like, if you bought food and you're like, what am I going to do? Like, hey, um, fix it for someone else that you know who's having a hard time. I apologize for that change up, but it just made sense. And we don't want to, you guys are awesome, and you guys just do so much already, and there was, it was going to be, I think, a lot for our team to figure out how do we reschedule all of this, too many moving pieces, you guys are busy enough as it is, and so we just pulled the plug, and we just stepped back away. They just don't need us on that week, and so if you signed up, if you're like sitting here going, I have no idea what he's talking about, great, you're good. Uh, but if you're signed up to bring food, hey, you don't, you don't, you don't need to do that, pump the brakes, okay? on that. Um, if you have more questions about um, how to be involved and you, because you got excited and things like that, we got plenty of opportunities. So um, just want to make sure I got that out to you before that takes place next week. And so, all right, we're going to be in Isaiah 64. Uh, I think uh, Mike lets you know that in advance. So we're going to be in Isaiah 64, one through nine. So if you, you know, turn, open your Bible, if you brought one, turn it on, if you got one, I'm going to, I'm going to give a little bit of context for it. Um, prophets like Isaiah, it's weird to jump right into them sometimes. Um, and so, as you kind of, t you know, take a deep breath, how was Thanksgiving? Okay? Are you okay? Does anybody know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Thanksgiving, was it great for everybody? It's wonderful. It's, I mean, you know, are you tired? I mean, here's the thing. You guys are here and you're not sick. Everybody seems to be sick. And so... Um, yeah, any family drama? Anybody want to share? No? Uh, um, any restrained lips uh, in the kitchen um, uh, or while you're cooking up, while you're cleaning, while you're planning, while you're gathering with family or friends? Any, anybody struggling? If you're like, I have no idea, really? I thought family stuff just brings dynamics that are just difficult uh, for us all. They're hard sometimes, aren't they? I, I, and so um, I just think that like it can bring some exhaustion. Um, there's some probably some tension at the table, tension in the kitchen, maybe uh, t tension over the phone or email scheduling with people over the last week or two. You may have more of that coming with Christmas. Um, tension, if you had any of that, um, trying to figure out how to get along with this sibling, this parent, this child. <laughs> this uncle, this aunt, this cousin, this friend. Tension puts you in a really good mental space for this morning. Um, it puts you in a mental space for this text. Tension is, is a good thing for you to think about. It actually puts you in a good space for entering in this, to this season, of, which is the st start of Advent, um, the church season that's four weeks long leading up to Christmas, um, as we prepare for that, it is a season about tension. It's about the space in between, right? That's what Advent is. Advent just means arrival, in case you don't know. Um, 
And so you're really thinking about in Advent, these four weeks, you're thinking about that space, how we're in that space between. We're the last days. There's nothing really left. It's, you had the first arrival of Jesus in the flesh um, that happened already, right? And then now we're in the middle space awaiting for the second arrival where he'll come to judge the world. And so there's, we live in that tension. And so Advent is this time of year where you, you, you really you acknowledge it in a particularly concentrated way. And you say, what does it mean? You know, what is it doing to me? And how am I responding to that tension? Uh, so Advent is about that tension. Um, and it, it has a purpose. Like tension's not just like the end. It's a means to an end, which is hope. Now, ultimately, Advent, like the whole idea, if, if, if you're a part of a church that celebrates Advent like we do, we think about Advent, like it's about hope. In some ways, it's like every year you could predict, like we could probably just do an Advent series every single year, and it's like, it's hope again. <laughs> you don't really have to reinvent it. It's about hope. Advent is very much about defiant hope, I would even say. I think that that's what we see in the Bible, hope in spite of circumstances, hope in spite of appearances, hope in spite of tears and loss, hope. Um, hope is a belief. It's a feeling. Uh, I would say also, though, it, it's something you have to practice. That's why we named the series what we did, practice. Uh, because if hope isn't something that you practice, honestly, I can't really, you can't really say that you have it. Like, it has to be activated in practices. And we're going to spend the next few weeks looking at practices of hope. Like, how do we practice hope? How do we practice Christmas? That sort of a thing. I'm not going to get into all of that today. I'm just going to talk to you. I'm going to try to just briefly talk about hope. Like, what's the birthplace of hope? What's the start of hope? Isaiah 64, 1 through 9. It's a starting place. For hope, but it's kind of a strange text for you. You're going to probably, and you've already had a little bit of it this morning, you're going to read this and you're going to go, what is hopeful about this passage? You're going to be like, this is the, how you kick off Christmas? Um, so I want to set it up a bit. By way of setting it up, I'll, when I, I'll use Mark Twain. Here's a, a quote by, I, I, it's attributed to Mark Twain. It, it goes like this. It ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. <laughs> so here's what I was thinking as I was thinking about that line of his, which I love. It's, there's a kind of trouble that Christians like us, we should get into. There is. There's a, kind of, there's, a, there's a kind of trouble you should get into that is a kind of life of contradiction. And you're like, what? We just spent all this time talking about problems in the church and how churches should not be like hypocrites and... I know, but there actually is a kind of trouble you should get into, like not for being a jerk, like, you know, not from being super judgmental or greedy or abusive or neglectful, um, but there is a good, good kind of trouble. Um, and the prophets, which Isaiah being one of them, um, the prophets in the Bible are really good at this kind of trouble. <laughs> they got in trouble all the time. Um, they had a way of speaking with certainty in ways that contradicted the surroundings and their times. So um, Isaiah being a chief, the chief really among them, I mean, so he wrote like seven, 800 years or so before Christ. 
in about 125 years or so, roughly, before the fall of Judah, God's people, to the Babylonian Empire. And he spoke words of judgment and he spoke words of hope. If you've ever attempted to read the book of Isaiah, you can really kind of frame it under those two headings, judgment and hope. And they're very, very deeply connected. You can't have one without the other. And that's kind of what the Bible's talking about. And so he would speak of impending judgment even if things in the present condition seem great. And people would be just bothered. And he would also speak words of, of eventual deliverance um, and salvation, despite the surroundings being dreadful, dark, despairing. He kind of just had this way, and prophets were known for this. They, they frequently ignored um, their surroundings and listened to God, and they spoke for God. And so they, they were often ignored and hated because they kind of had against-the-grain way of thinking and speaking. They had the special gift of calling things as they truly saw them. Truth is not measured in mass appeal. And the prophets knew that. And they also had a way of calling out things that you couldn't see yet. Invisible to the eye. And so the, I, the setting for Isaiah 64 that you're getting ready to read is right in the middle, or right in the midst of, you've got to think the backdrop of it is, is realizing and remembering terrible loss. Um, that's how people would have read it. The people of God in Jerusalem, had, they'd been sacked um, years ago, and many of them had been carried off, the best and the brightest, uh, the leadership, really, in many ways, all of those people, even the artists, and they had been carried off into exile, to Babylon. You, many of you know that. It's a major theme and part of the story in the Bible. And so, and, and then eventually there's a change in power, you know, it goes from Babylon to Persia, and all this stuff happens, and then they're released, and they can go back. They can go back to their homeland. They can go back. But when they go back, what do they see? They see destruction. They see their city ruined. And they see their temple, which is, represents God's presence and glory and beauty. And it gives a sense of life and renewal to them. And they look at that and they go, man, there's nothing left. It's just pebbles and stones. I mean, it's just all ruined. And this is real history. You know, you can look this stuff up. Um, and so that's what they would have felt. All signs pointed, like the surrounding environment. I mean, their, their, their ancestors, people that had been slaughtered. And they would have just thought and felt just deep sadness. They would have thought, wow, it seems the surrounding, uh, our surrounding environment seems to paint a picture that God doesn't care. He doesn't care. And see... Um, Isaiah can see this in his visions as he's writing this piece here. He can see the loss. He can see the feelings that are associated with loss. And then he speaks honestly about it. And so that's how you read it. And so let's read it. And so 64, 1 through 9, here's what the prophet says. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of, from of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear, no eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. 
you meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry, and we sinned. In our sins, we have been a long time. Shall we be saved? We've all become like one who was unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There's no one who calls upon your name who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But, but now, O oh Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter, and we are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O oh Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look. We are all your people. This is the word of the Lord. Some of you are like, oh, that's where Paul got all that language. In Romans. You know, like he, this is where he took so much of his theology is Isaiah. Isaiah is the one who came up with it. <laughs> it's beautiful language. It's poetic. And so if you're, you're thinking what a terrible passage to kick off <laughs> the most wonderful time of the year. Uh, well, bear with me. <laughs> I, I understand what I, like, I'm attempting to do this morning. It's like a wah, wah, wah way to k- kick off Christmas season. Um, the hard words of Isaiah are selected purposely. Like, it, they have a purpose, and that purpose is the pursuit of hope. I think words like this actually lead us into hope. Make no mistake, Isaiah was full of hope. Isaiah was absolutely full of defiant hope. In chapter 35, verse 3 and 4, he kind of just tells you what his aim is, like what he's really getting after, what he really wants for you as a a Christian. This is what he says. It's it's a really famous uh, couple lines. He says, Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. You're like, yeah, that's the Christmas passage. But here's the thing, Isaiah isn't going to pretend like conditions are great in the present condition that they're in. He's got hope, but he's not blind. Real hope means believing things yet to come while not pretending that the current darkness isn't there. Real hope is birthed out of, um, it's not birthed out of distraction and just looking to the sunny side of things. I've been thinking all week long uh, about how often that is a go-to for us, and we just don't really recognize that that's what we're doing. Real hope is birthed in ache, like when you ache, when you have a longing. Like real hope is birthed in the place of longing for the heavens to break open. Oh, that you would rend open the heaven and come down. There's nothing left. I can't, we can't solve it. The poet, uh, W.H. Auden, saw this pretending years ago. World War II was breaking out. This is what he wrote. Faces along the bar cling to their average day. The lights must never go out. The music must always play. All the conventions conspire to make this fort assume the furniture of home, lest we should see where we are, lost in a haunted wood, children afraid of the night, 
who have never been happy or good. Auden looked at the crowds around him in that day, and he saw something many of us want to ignore. Many of us are living a kind of life as a defense and distraction from the fear, the sadness, and the guilt that lies underneath. And so you can't shut off the light. You can't turn off the music. You can't stop the drinks from flowing. Because if you did, you might begin to have to look at it in the face and go, I'm really unhappy. Or I feel really guilty. My kids um, have to go to bed at night with um, audible books playing in the background. Uh, Diary of the Wimpy Kid currently. It's like, oh my gosh, I'm so sick of Diary of the Wimpy Kid. Um, they have to have that kind of distraction. You know, the darkness is scary to them, it's quiet. I'm not picking on my kids, I'm no better. I'm just a little more sophisticated. I have a white noise machine. <laughs> you know, it's, for me, it's noise to turn out the noise. Such a strange thing. Darkness, like I said, brings silence, and sleep sometimes won't, just won't come quick enough. You know what I mean? And, and when it's dark and you're lying in the quiet, and it's really quiet, then all of a sudden things come to mind that aren't always pleasant. And you don't know quite what to do with them. Sometimes it's just easier to try to shut them out. So I, my thing is, is I just can't help but notice how Christmas music starts to play earlier and earlier every year. Am I the only one? Right? Like, it's soon, pretty soon it's going to be like, I'm going to be walking through Target in July, and it's like, are we listening to Christmas music right now? It seems to happen earlier and earlier. The catalogs come out sooner. Like, my kids get the Christmas catalog from Amazon, like, October 1st. And I'm like, guys rushing, aren't you? It comes so, so fast. I, I, I know that in part it's just marketers captivating our minds with all the Christmas feels. If you captivate us enough, we'll spend some money. And, and, and I love it. And, I, and I, Look, we, we decorated our house yesterday with Christmas stuff. I'm, I'm, I'm for it. It's great. I love the season. But underneath all of this, I just can't help but think, are we just addicted to numbing out the darkness? It's like we rush to Christmas because we just want the cheer. Because life is hard. And this whole year's been hard. We're trying to numb out the guilt, the sadness that lies beneath the surface. So the quicker we throw up the lights, the quicker we throw up the decorations, the quicker we put Mariah Carey on the background <laughs> singing Christmas songs, the better we're going to feel, right? My point is just this. This is all my point is. To have hope, we must take an inventory of the darkness. That's what Advent is about. You got to see it. You got to feel it. You got to own your own participation in it. That's actually the starting place of Advent. That's the starting place of hope. And in some ways, it's what you lean into the whole season leading up to Christmas. We don't let the goodness of the lights in the room, which are good, by the way, I love it. I love the Christmas decorations. I love the Christmas carols. I love the gifts. These are proper responses to Christmas. I'm for it. But we can't let those good things distract us from the darkness that we're still facing in our own lives and in our world around us. Real biblical hope, the hope that the Bible prescribed, isn't blind optimism. It's not sentimentalism. It's not. 
It's live, it, you know, it isn't living in denial while you practice positive psychology on yourself. That's not biblical hope. Real hope doesn't come from thinking you can somehow dig deep within yourself and tell yourself good, positive thoughts, and things will get better for you. Just try harder. Try harder to feel better. If you feel bad, you're not trying hard enough. That is not nowhere near what the Bible says. It's actually about leaning into the ache you feel. It's about facing the darkness you sometimes feel swallowed up by and, and, and then beginning to really wrestle with who is God? What does he actually mean? What does he actually want from me? Where, what is going on, God? And dealing with him. What makes you ache? What, what, what makes you crumble a bit or completely? You've got it. You've got aches. You've, you're a human being. I've got aches. I've got things. I've got loss. You have loss. What losses, what difficulties do you have that seem so difficult that you know deep, deep within yourself that there just isn't a strategy within yourself or within your community that can get you out of it. There's no answer for it. I've had many calls over the years that have been hard for me as a pastor. Calls that, and experiences that make you ache. One of my worst, you wanna hear about it? Yes, I'll tell you. One of my worst call from the city of Middletown, uh, dispatch. I, I work in a chapel in the city for, for a number of years and got a call late. It was like 9, 10 p.m. one night. Got a call from uh, Middletown dispatch and they say, hey, there's been a shooting and we need you to go to Atrium Hospital. It's a teen, teenager. We need you to be there uh, when mom comes in for the body. It's like, I'm busy, you know? I'm, I don't want to do that. Um, so I drove to Atrium Hospital, and I, I went strange. It's like, I don't know, with, is this protocol, you know, uh, for me to walk in? And I was just brought right into the room immediately. And um, I was brought into the operating room. The operating room. And they were, uh, they were finishing they were done. And by finishing and done, I mean they were standing back from the body because he was dead. And there wasn't anything left that they could do. And so the nurses, the surgeons, the, the, the whole, I mean, there's just a crowd of brilliant people doing the best that they could to work on him. And he lie there, 16, 17 years old, no shirt on, tattered jeans, and scuffed up basketball shoes and just riddled with holes. And it's an image, of course, I can't get out of my head. Um, some things just can't be unseen, you know? Um, so we bring mom in. Mom cries, of course, over him. And for uh, 30 minutes or so, I stand there thinking, what am I doing? Why am I here? I don't know what to do. Save me from the situation, Lord. 
I gave that space. Eventually, she'd had enough. She didn't want to see anymore. So we took her out of the room, and I tried to ask if there were any questions so that I could answer. And uh, she didn't seem interested whatsoever in speaking to me. She wasn't interested in the consolations that I had to offer. And I'm sure I wasn't necessarily great at it at the time either. I didn't really know what I was doing. And I could sense that there wasn't a whole lot of trust, you know. I, in some ways, I think I, looking back on that now, I, I probably represented a, 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 a side or a uh, a side of the establishment that's just um, could potentially be dangerous. I'm white. I'm male. I had a Middletown, I think, fire, you know, or police hat on at the time. I just, everything about it probably was just not conducive for a helpful conversation. And so after an awkward back and forth for a while, I realized, well, I just, there's nothing for me to do. And so I just left. I went to my car. I drove home, Spotify didn't seem like a good idea at the time, and I crawled in bed, you know, uh, next to my wife, and digested the fact that somehow, you know, my, there's a certain level of naivete that is gone, and I'll never get that back. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. You know what I mean? That's the only... There's only one kind of, there's only one type of words for such an occasion. Those are the only ones that I can think of. You can't, don't dare fill those kinds of moments with just biblical platitudes. The only thing left is, oh, tear open the sky and come down, please. We can't fix this. There isn't enough wine in the world to save you from the bottom of your glass. You understand? So the Fleming Rutledge, who speaks eloquently on Advent, says it best. She says, the great theme of Advent is hope, but it is not tolerable to speak of hope unless we are willing to look squarely at the overwhelming presence of evil in our world. A religion that talks about God being obviously present all the time is not true. That would be a religion that had taken God for granted, <laughs> that had tried to appropriate God for its own ends. The lament of Isaiah teaches us something different. The church cannot possess or control the presence of God. Only God is in control of his own presence. It is faith that teaches us that God is to be trusted in spite of appearances. What the church holds on to by grace through faith is two things. We hold on to memory and we hold on to hope. We remember the great things that God has done for us, and we hold on to a hope that amounts to a certainty because God has made promises, and it is an inalienable part of God's nature that he keeps his promises. So Isaiah is holding on to memory. In verse 3, he says it, When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down and mountains quaked at your presence, you know. Isaiah's recalling things. You split the sea open. You, you made it so that they could walk on dry land. You've brought fire down on mountains. Like, you've done crazy things, God. But Isaiah's willing to admit that sometimes the presence of God feels absent and absolutely impossible to locate. That's real life. And most of you, maybe all of you in the room, know that. 
And although Isaiah's words are uncomfortable to us, we don't like to think of God, you know, hiding his presence from us, you know? Like we immediately, we've got like New Testament passages like ready. Resist that for a moment. He does know, although God seems to be so hidden, he, he's clear-headed, though, about God's concern. Very clear-headed about it. Verse 5, behold, you were angry, and we sinned. And in our sins, we have been a very, very long time. And shall we be saved? Does this, should this really happen for us, God? We struggle to know what to do with that because we like, don't like to think of an angry God. Because what you envision in your head is what you and I do in our anger, which is not pretty. But when the world looks at darkness, which it has done for centuries, it often reduces our options down to two. When all the evil and the darkness, the violence, the guns, everything is happening, the hatred, the abuse, all of it, we think, well, there's probably only two options, right? Either A, God isn't real. Or B, he is, but he's obviously unconcerned. And so the prophets come along, and they say things, and they speak in a way where they go, no, 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 why have you reduced this down to this false dichotomy? No, God is real, and he is deeply concerned. He is angry about it. Very angry about the darkness. Very angry about the hatred. Isaiah will not look at God like the world looks at God very often. He sees what evil has done to us and how it's caused us to participate and perpetuate it. And he knows that he is angered by it precisely because he does care and he is deeply concerned. But Isaiah isn't prepared to give up on his complaints and his pleas to God because Isaiah doesn't see him as some cold creator who is disgusted and therefore detached from like this monster that he's created. No, no, no. He sees him as father, doesn't he? Verse 8, but now, O Lord, you are our father, we are the clay, and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not our iniquity forever. Behold, please look. We are all your people. So God will look. God, God, God never stopped looking, but to just forget all the evil in the world would mean cheap grace. It would mean no real justice for what's happened. It would mean what has, what, what's going to be done? What's gonna, how do we justify all of this stuff that we've done on this earth? God isn't cheap. God is not blind. He is not unjust, nor is he cruel. So what does he do? And many of you know what he's done. I mean, when you take it all together and you put the whole story together, he did something that no human mind could possibly imagine, something that people still continue to this day to stumble over, sadly. God did something that we no one ever saw coming. He poured out his righteous indignation on all the evil, right, on himself. On himself. This is how he figures it out. The fullness of anger would be stored up and released on Jesus who would absorb every last drop of it. The fullness of his anger goes out on his son. As sad as it was for Israel, they have no idea how much anger God has for sin 
and failure. He's holy, terribly holy. And he stores up all that anger and he just pours it out on his son. He would sacrifice his son and cast him into hell so that the price of forgiving and forgetting could actually be paid, fully paid. It's in this way that God becomes perfectly just in handling the hatred of this place and perfectly merciful to those of us who cannot make up for our mistakes. He can hold them both. He's equally skilled. That's what no mind imagined was possible. If you find that kind of act <laughs> cruel, which is reasonable to think, like how could a father, how could a loving father pour out all of his wrath and just sacrifice his son who was innocent? How could he dare, dare he do that? Well, listen, you're getting closer to how passionately, mercifully in love he is with you. You're getting closer to it you're able to finally begin to see it and go, oh. That is not sentimental love. This is violent, passionate, terrifying, unimaginably terrifying love. Amen. Something that you could spend the rest of your life trying to plumb the depths of and you only get a fraction of it. A God that would give, go to that length to forget your sins. Not just forgive them, forget them. Cast them into hell. I will remember them no more because I beat my own son so that I will never remember yours. A God that would go to that length is a God that could be trusted when it's really, really dark. You can say, I can trust him. I don't know what's going on and this is horrible, but I can trust him. So as you begin this Advent, don't deny looking at the darkness of the world in, in, in around you as well as in your own life. To deny that isn't hope, it's just sentimentalism. It's just flimsy distraction from the real condition of things. Stare it in the face. Look at it. You don't need to like live there, but we do need to look at it. Look at the darkness so that you can authentically begin to complain, right? complain and protest to God for his presence. So you can begin to actually protest that he might show up to rend open the heavens and come down so that the world would finally know how much he loves it. We insist on so many things. My, my kids are insisting on so many things for Christmas. The list gets bigger and bigger and bigger every day. You insist on things. There are things you're insisting on right now. And you insist on things from your job and your coworkers, your spouse, your kids, the world, yourself. What are you insisting with God about? How many of us are saying, you have got to come down? If you don't come down, this thing is a mess. I insist on your presence. I protest. I complain. We don't have enough of your presence. Can you imagine if... Church folks started to do that on a regular basis, insisting, demanding God's presence. What would cause you to insist on God's presence? I think staring at despair, staring it in the face, realizing that without it, without his presence, we truly are hopeless. 
You know, the last thing is we come into communion. It's so interesting. Isaiah's talking about the anger of God. He's talking about the hidden face of God. God, you're absent. You know what's interesting? Is Isaiah um, is doing all of this. He's, his words here, his very words, all of these words seem to betray his feelings. You know, did you notice that? What I mean is, is he's not talking to you, he's talking to God. <laughs> in other words, even when God appears to be absent to him, he goes on addressing him. That's what Christians do. We protest God's absence to God's face. We say, you're not here. It's like, who are you talking to, Isaiah? You think he's hidden. So we have to defy even our own feelings at times and say, no, 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 he's listening. Even though this is what it seems and this is what I feel. Protesting God's seeming absence to God's listening ears is the definition of hope. He keeps on talking to him. So I hope that you will keep talking to him as you stare your own despair in the face. That's the mood of Advent. God, look at us. You have to do something. And so as you come to the table this morning, remember that Jesus himself, as he was entering into that dreaded, dreaded moment of the crucifixion, he was giving us something tangible because he knew that this would be a struggle for us. He knew that by living in this world of darkness and tribulation and trouble and all the things that come with it, the suffering, the sin, every bit of it, it's really, really hard to hold on to memory. It's really hard to hold on to hope. So he gave you something physical, right? It was so ordinary, bread, wine, so ordinary, so accessible. But the whole point is for you to be like, man, so like I can... Touch it, I can digest it, I can bring it in, and I can go, man, despite all appearances, he's paid the debt. He's canceled, he's canceled the, the record against me, right? We're not, you're not under wrath in Christ Jesus. And so you come forward to this station or to this station. This bread that we have represents Christ's body broken for you. The cup of wine represents Christ's blood shed for you. You can take a piece, dip it in the wine or the juice. There's a station here, there's a station here. There's actually gluten-free at this station if, if that's what you need. Whatever works for you. Pray. Think about this. I don't expect you to be able to like get into all of your despair maybe in this moment. If you do, that's totally fair. But maybe I would encourage you to just be able to take some moments and go, look past the lights, look past the music, which are all good things, and remember, there is darkness there is darkness, and we need him, and we need him to come down, and he will. Let us pray. Father, we remember that um, there is wonderful hope because of what your son has done, but that being said, Father, there still is so much pain, there's still so much loss, we have bodies that fail, we have hearts that fail, we have minds that fail, we have um, weak faith, we have moments where we lack loyalty, we lack courage, we all struggle. And we all fade like the grass, we wither. And so Father, we wanna take this moment to just remember our frailty, remember our weakness, and remember that God, you will not give up on us, you stay with us, and you are present to us 
in a very unique and special way that is sometimes very difficult for us to grasp. And so as we take the bread and we take the cup this morning, may we remember what has happened, the price that has been paid so that we could trust you, so that we could hold on to hope in spite of all dark despair, loss around us. As we enter into Advent, Father, fill us with that hope. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.